Oh my God, I agree so strong, right? Like the Locke and Brentman bridge is super, I think it's super dangerous. I, I'm not a fan and I don't like it. And I think that there is such risk of vendor lock-in um, and centralization risks that are super scary and are the antithesis of like what the systems we're trying to build are. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, 0.72, all in one room, so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. This episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, Dan and I interview Hart Lambert of UMA and Across. This was a really fun one. We explicitly covered interoperability and the role that DEXs play there. So we talked about some of the different flavors of bridges that exist today, why some might be better than others, and how interoperability is all going to play out. But Hart is also just a very deep thinker about market structure and the future of crypto in this whole design space. So uh, a lot of it, we focused on the interoperability and DEX side of things, but we also went down some really fun rabbit holes as well. So Without any further ado, let's go right to the program. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Robinson, and we've got Hart Lambert on with us today. So, Hart, welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming this on. Is, uh, this is cool. Um, we were just describing that uh, Hart and Dan have never been on a podcast together. So, technically, this is not only a podcast episode, but this is a moment in uh, podcasting history. So, um, we'll all just try to soak in the moment and enjoy it <laughs> together yeah. here. Our- our relationship deepens, Dan. Just... Hard and I, Hard and I have been have been friends in the industry for a long time, and so uh, and, and uh, have had a lot of great conversations, but none of them recorded to date. So Dan has also never invested in anything I've built, so there's also that's that, also like, sore point. So, uh, <laughs> We've never so had to do that disclaimer before. Disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer. Uh, Paradigm has not invested in Hart. I'm sorry, Hart. You you maybe borrowed ideas, but haven't haven't invested. <laughs> oh yes, yes, many times. <laughs> All right, guys. So um, why don't we just start? I want to want to kind of broach this subject that Dan and I have covered um, sort of in a secondary capacity so far this season, but I want to directly address it with this episode, which is this idea of inoperability. And I want to spend a lot of time digging into the intersection between interop and DEXs and the role that DEXs play in interoperability. Um, But before we even get into that specific intersection, just at a high level heart, can you kind of walk us through the current state of interoperability in crypto, why it's been such a thorny sort of issue that, you know, why, why haven't we figured this out by now? Yeah, well, I definitely can't walk through the whole state of interop because this is like a weird, long, multi-podcast thing to probably go through. Um, and the semantics here make it all awkward. Um, but what I would say is like why this is a problem, um, as we know, uh, achieving consensus isn't the easiest thing, 
right? Like, uh, there's, we built blockchains and spent years doing it to figure this out. And Interop is trying to achieve consensus on one chain about what happened on the other chain. That's like not an easy thing to do. Um, and I think a lot of the approaches, I think there's a lot of room in this design space for how we should go about doing it. Many different approaches and um, people are still exploring all the trade-offs. Um, I might keep that as like the really high level issue of why interrupts, interrupts hard. Um, curious if, I don't know if Dan has anything to add. Yeah. Well, just to, um, I think Hart will agree with this, but I do think, you know, one, one type of interoperability certainly involves that, but there are many ways to get what people would, would like to get out of interoperability without having to, having to achieve consensus and, um, getting value from one chain to another doesn't necessarily have to involve, um, uh, any kind of like high stakes consensus on one chain about what happened on the other chain. It can be done, you know, this, this guy, and this goes back to HTLCs and some of the original ways that, that um, people have thought about interoperability between blockchains, where the only parties that matter are actually like the two parties that are doing the swap and they, and they just have to come up with a protocol for actually getting value across chains. So I do think there are, you know, if, if we broaden it a bit, there's a lot of interesting, um, there's a huge interesting design space here around how, how minimal can we make the requirements for actually being able to get what users want out of interoperability, which is getting um, uh, value from one chain to another. And just my, fra my framing for interoperability, I think, would be, and you know, I think of a lot of things in, in DEX terms, and of course, since this is a DEX season, we'll, we'll, I think we'll be covering some of the inter, uh, intersection here. But um, I think of interoperability uh, from a user perspective as, as very similar to what they want from a DEX, where with a decentralized exchange, often what you want is you have one asset um, possibly on, on one chain and you want to get a, uh, get value in another asset on that same chain. And with interoperability, often you have one asset on a particular chain and what you want is uh, is some value on another chain, on some on some destination chain. And so that you could think of that as um, as a message being passed, which is often how people think about interoperability. But you could also think about it as a, as a decentralized exchange transaction where I'm, I'm starting with, I have something that I have and I, there's something that I want. Um, and I think if you think about it in those ways, you can often think about find find different solutions that are maybe uh, yeah are, are less technically imposing. Very much agree on that point, and I think actually that might be a good way of also focusing like this conversation, where I am much more interested in how you move value between blockchains, not how you move messages. Um, and not to say that messaging is not important; it's got its use case. But like 90% of what people are doing on blockchains today is like basically DEX transfers. And I think like 90 plus percent of what people are going to, be, going to want to be doing in terms of interop is moving value. It's moving tokens. And the messaging thing is, um, I think if you focus on moving value, your design space uh, is different. And we can talk about, I mean, some of the trade-offs here and uh, I think intense-based architectures and kind of what we're doing. Um, I think that there's much more clever solutions if you focus on that sub sus that that subset of interoperability. So I tend to agree. Before we even get into some of the nuance there, could you guys just give for folks in the audience who might not be as deep as you guys are into the interop sort of conversation? You know, when people even talk about something like messages, even even for me actually, I would love to just get a sense of like what is a message within the context of how maybe like a layer zero or sort of general messaging protocol might might talk about it. And then even within like, what is kind of the orthodoxy right now within um, sort of the bridging or, you know, cross-chain messaging ecosystem? Like what are people generally trying to optimize for? Just kind of catch us up on on what people are talking about. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and Dan interrupt, right? So a message, message is I want to send some message. I want to send hello world from one chain to another. 
got to figure out how to do that. Cool. Um, I actually think the baser primitive here is one blockchain wants to read state from another blockchain. So you write hello state on blockchain A, and you want to wait for blockchain B to read hello, hello world on blockchain A. Um, and so that read state is the basic primitive, and you want to figure out how to get that back and forth. Um, when it comes, though, to bridging specifically, um, I'll give you like kind of my framework for how I look about this, and then Dan can critique it and kind of add to it. Um, but what bridging is usually around bridging assets, or let's focus it around bridging assets. And in that context, the idea typically is I deposit asset on chain A, and then typically some message happens that goes to chain B, and I get asset on chain B. Um, and I'm going to frame this general framework. The term I'm, I kind of want to start using is actually a TradFi term called like delivery versus payment. It comes from like trading bonds. So I'm going to deliver payment and uh, I'm, I'm going to make delivery of my, my cash and I'm going to receive my bonds. And I think it really is like an exchange term. So I'm going to make a delivery on chain A, receive payment on chain B. Um, and again, the, the kind of standard way of thinking about this is that these, this, this deposit transaction happens and I send a message. It's kind of messy middle thing. Um, and this, there's definitely two flavors to this. Uh, one flavor is these like lock and mint bridges. So I lock asset and my deposit contract, send a message and I mint like a wrapped or synthetic version of that token on the other chain. Um, that's one flavor that I, I quite dislike because of the security implications there. Um, of this like big lockbox of assets on the origin chain. Um, but you can do a flavor of this that's also um, like what's called a liquidity network where I have pools of the native assets on both chains. I deposit in a pool on chain A, send message and release asset on chain B. Um, and this delivery versus payments sort of structure is the way I describe basically every bridge out there except for across, um, across does something differently, uh, does, does something different with, with like an intense architecture. Um, maybe I'll pause there. Dan, what do you think? You agree with that? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think, uh, uh, that's a good description, I think of this, of this lock and mint structure. And I think that's, you know, I think it's a very important distinction between how bridges work and Hart and I, you know, I'm preaching back to the choir here because I've learned a lot of, you know, how I think about this from Hart, but, um, this, you know, this way of bridging assets where you, where you lock an asset on one chain and, and mint something on the other chain, I think of it as like, it's like bridging, uh, via like a particle where you have, you know, you have some, some, um, asset and now you've got a representation of that asset on the destination chain. You've like moved the actual asset over in some sense, like this, this sort of like matter has been moved from one chain to another. Um, but there's another type of, of, uh, interoperability, um, when someone just wants to move value across chains. Um, which I was alluding to before, which I think of more like a wave. So, you know, like the wave um, particle duality in, in quantum physics. Um, I think of this as like as moving value like a wave where I'm I'm doing a, a trade on one chain. And what matters is that I get some value, some particular asset that I want on the other chain. But at no point am I, um, am I locking up the value that I have on this chain and minting some representation of it on the other chain. I'm actually just um, swapping in some sense with someone. And we have we have some mechanism in there to guarantee that there is that there's atomicity here. Um, so one one thing to note about this like wave uh, uh, method, the the ladder method here, 
is that it doesn't actually require um, any message to be passed between chains. It doesn't require an oracle. And we know this because like one of the first ways we've ever that's ever existed of having interoperability across blockchains, um, uh, HTLCs, was invented by um, in, in one form by Satoshi Nakamoto in a, um, in a, a post uh, like over 10 years ago. And this is uh, an idea where, where I, if I have a counterparty, I can just lock up value on one, um, on one chain. Um, he locks up value on the other chain. We do this two-phase commit protocol, basically, where, um, where Alice locks on one chain, Bob locks on the other chain, and then um, Alice is able to unlock Bob's value on, Bob, on Bob's chain. And that gives Bob the information he needs to unlock Alice's value on um, on the other chain. And that's one that's a, a way of actually doing a, a fair exchange across these chains without having any uh, uh, any kind of message passed between the, between those chains. And so I think that I think the the wave theory. And I'm curious for Hart's take on where exactly across fits between in this duality here. Um, but I think one of the things is this allows a lot of different kinds of interoperability that aren't possible. Um, or it makes it a lot easier. For example, with with the with the matter thing, uh, the the particle uh, uh, kind of interoperability, you need two way message passing between these two chains. You need some oracle for the state of the source chain on, uh, or the, the origin chain on the destination chain. You need some oracle for the state of the destination chain on the source chain uh, in order to be able to bridge the asset back. Um, and you don't need any, you don't, you need none of it technically for um, uh, for having uh, the sort of like wave. Uh, fair exchange with using HLCs, but if you have one way message passing, you can then there's a lot that you could do um, that also looks more like a wave, uh, and that's that's how Uniswap X works, for example, um, which I can which I can get into in a moment. But I'm curious, Hart, does that does that duality make sense to you? And do you would you how would you uh, characterize across in that uh, in that pattern? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'd go deep. I'm not sure I'd love the duality analogy, but I do agree that there's two different ways of doing this. And like, Mike, I don't know if you know, but like Dan can teach a masterclass on HTLCs. You can Google like all these old like talks he gave uh, from way back. Um, and the HTLC thing, the, the downside to this, right, is just the user had to do a bunch of actions. Like you have to go back and forth with this two-phase commit. And it kind of has this like user experience that never really worked. Um, I, I do think across is closer to this. But the, the trick, which Uniswap X also uses, is that we introduce a third party here. Um, so unlike all these delivery versus payment bridge designs, we introduce a third party that Uniswap X calls a filler, across calls a relayer, CowSwap calls a solver. The, this third party, though, they have this unique property, property where they're actually willing to like lend assets on the destination chain um, on the user's behalf. And um, what happens here is we've like completely kind of broken the, the way the, 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 the particle bridge works where the user's, um, user's deposit, um, it's not released to the relayer until we, ver like the relayer goes and basically fills the user with their own capital, with their own money on the destination chain. And the user assets on the origin chain are not released until we verify that the relayer actually did what they said they were going to do. And it's this really interesting trade-off where by introducing this third-party actor that's willing to function in this like sort of market maker role um, by extending capital, we're able to break a lot of the usability issues that HTLCs had um, and actually offer, I, I think, uh, a strictly better uh, user experience 
uh, in the design. And we can get way deep into why that is and how that works. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, so uh, so absolutely, I agree. And you know, my I had a talk on HGLCs a few years ago that I, if people are curious about HGLCs, would encourage you to check out called HGLCs considered harmful. And it's 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 very anti anti HGLC as a as a general method for uh, for doing cross chain um, uh, swaps. But in that in that talk, I actually do propose a way another way of doing cross chain swaps that doesn't and and off chain payment networks that doesn't involve um, any oracles between chains. Um, that's this packetized payment approach that we don't have to get into necessarily, but um, uh, it's, you know, another protocol that doesn't yet yeah, allows you to trade value from one chain to another without having to, um, uh, yeah, without, without necessarily having to do, uh, have it, have an Oracle between them. But yeah, so I think what, uh, what's hard, hard is pointing out here is that both, both across and Uniswap X, um, which are two methods of doing this kind of value exchange across chains, uh, both of them take advantage of the fact that you may have a, an Oracle trusted by at least the two parties, um, that are, that are doing the swap. Um, an oracle for whether settlement has happened on the destination chain, um, uh, uh, an oracle that is readable by the by the origin chain. And so, if you have a one way a one way message passing bridge, will will suffice for this. Uh, if you are able, if the origin chain is able to the, the chain where the where the swapper has their asset and wants to move somewhere else, uh, if you're if that chain is able to read state from the destination chain in one way or another in a way that is that is satisfactory to, at least to the participants in this transaction. Um, then, uh, then it's possible for a for the swapper to, um, uh, to to have a much more efficient method than yeah than an HGLC, um, which which uh, requires much more interaction between these parties. And yeah, here you can have sort of a minimal a minimal uh, interaction in order to, to transfer value. I do want to mention since I think neither of us would naturally uh, be in favor of the or or, or be, be uh, shouting to the rooftops the benefits of a um, of the sort of two way. Uh, lock and mint style bridge. One advantage that the lock and mint style bridge does have is the ability to end up with a representation of the of the assets from the origin chain on the destination chain. So if you want to, for example, be trading ETH on Solana, you need something like this, or you could maybe, or you could have a synthetic, but that that you know uh, you, have, you have capital efficiency um, uh, uh, downsides there. Um, but if you want to just have like a capital efficient synthetic, you know, Bitcoin on um, on Ethereum, for example, you know, you, it, it helps to be able to have this two-way message passing bridge and be able to like lock a lot, a lot of Bitcoin on one on one chain and uh, mint it on the other, um, so that you can actually have, so you can go trade with that with that asset and do and do various things with the asset on the destination chain. So that is that is a benefit that you don't get with these one-way bridges. So note that basically, if if you have no no, so if we think about this in just terms of what are the requirements on the on the um, on the platforms, if you have no oracles at all, you can do an HLC. You can do this kind of complicated two-phase commit. Uh, procedure between this, these two traders in order to transfer value from one chain to another, um, but it's kind of inefficient. Um, it has it has these downsides. Uh, uh, it it takes takes multiple steps, and like if one party aborts in the middle of it, it can be just a, a disaster for the other party. Um, uh, locks up their capital for a while. If you have a um, a one way message passing bridge, then you can do these protocols like Uniswap X and across. And if you have a two way message passing bridge, uh, then you can do these lock and mint protocols. But yeah, actually, hard I think uh, helped. Uh, radicalize me against the two-way message passing bridges. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit before well, we get into the details of the of the one-way of, of things like across? Do you want to talk about the lock and mint uh, protocols a bit? Uh, for a second, yeah, sure. I think one thing that would be clarifying though for the audience and and all this is um, when you're using the word oracle here, you're you're using it basically any message that's passed between chains is an oracle, like an or. So, and I don't think that's actually the way. Um, everybody thinks about it in the space, although I agree with this. Um, every message sent between chains 
is an oracle. You're reading from another chain. It's information that's not native to that blockchain. Um, one nuance I'll throw in here is um, that most layer most layer twos and many blockchains do have like a canonical oracle, which a canonical message passing bridge that is designed to have no or minimal additional trust assumptions over the the chain itself. And so um, one of the things like where Across tries to go is we we basically only make use of this isn't entirely true, but we're we're trying to go back into how we only use canonical bridge oracles or the canonical message layer. We're trying to use the most secure message layer at all times, even if it's expensive or slow. Um, we can talk about that more too. So yeah, Dan, what do you want to talk about in terms of lock and mint? Well, yeah, actually, I think that, that's a good one. So thinking about can, uh, bridge passing, right? Where, where, how do we get bridges? Um, so I think there are uh, there are a few ways and sort of building up. There's some, it's interesting. There are some oracles that are, have the same uh, security requirements as the, as the origin chain of the message. And there's some that have the same security requirements as the destination chain of the messages. And, and either of those sometimes are called canonical bridges. So if we take something like IBC, the, the, you know, inner blockchain communication protocol that, uh, um, uh, that Cos- the Cosmos ecosystem uses, that's one where the, the bridge is canonical because it's as secure as the, as the origin chain of the message. So if you want to send a message from one Cosmos chain to another, the consensus protocol for the origin chain, um, for the chain that's sending the message, basically is signing that message. And that's, that's how IBC works, is that it's, so it's, it's as secure as just like the core proof of stake consensus protocol for that, for that chain. Um, and then if you think about something like uh, 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 like a roll-up, any any L two essentially on um, on Ethereum. There's a there's a bridge, you know. There's a complicated uh, fault proof or validity proof based bridge to get from the roll-up to the L one to get from the L two to the L one, and that's what's enforced by by all the, like the you know the security there. But I think a really underrated, interesting bridge um, with uh, with L twos is the L one to L two bridge. Like what what is that bridge? Like what is it? How does it work? Like everybody, every one of them has a built in. Um, bridge for it, but like, why? How does that actually? How is it secure? Why is it secure? Um, and I think ultimately, you know, and this this gets into like some of the philosophical uh, debates about what a roll up is. But I think ultimately, it's it's secure because the consensus, the protocol that determines what's on the L two. Everybody who's validating the L two just has to validate the L one. And if the L one were to roll back, then the L two state just would roll back um, canonically. And I think you know, ultimately, in some sense, it's ultimately all enforced by the. Uh, in some ways, by the by the bridge back, like the bridge back depends on um, the the bridge there having having validated all the messages. That's part of the of the validity for for that bridge. But ultimately, what it really means is just the L two is built so that it is always reading what the L one state is. And so that's that's a case where the canonical, you know, it, it, it's canonical because it is actually just built into whatever's running the L two. Um, is that it has to respect the the L one state and, and messages from the L one. Um, but then you know, so I think those those are some kinds of canonical bridges there. Um, and then I think there's there's a lot of non-canonical bridges, which are you can think of. Usually there there's some kind. Oh, I'm sorry. What, one more type is is if you can prove the consensus mechanism of the um, of the L1 on uh, of, of one chain on another chain. And so I think one ex- one great example of those is a bridge from Bitcoin to any other chain. And you know you can build a, a bridge from Bitcoin to any smart contract chain um, by validating the the proof of work that was done on the, on the Bitcoin chain, you actually just validate the block headers. And so BTC relay, one of the first Bitcoin, um, uh, to Ethereum bridges was, was done this way. It validates actually the, uh, the, the block headers to make sure that there's been a lot of, uh, proof of work done on the, on the chain. So 
Yeah, like, so Mike, I think, like, we should pull ourselves out. As, as you see, we started this with, like, what is interop, right? Like, and it's I was going to, I was so gonna wait for you to respond yeah. there. Yeah, I, here's, here's <laughs> the way that I would sum the situation up so far, right? So there, there are sort of, we can divide our bridges into two separate categories here, maybe type one and type two bridges that each, each have its set of sort of pros and cons. Um, let, let's broadly call type one sort of the lock and mint model. Um, and the disadvantage of this, and that's basically mechanically what's going on under the hood. I want to draw actually a through line here back to an episode that we did last season on liquid staking with Sam Kazamian, who drew this comparison in between stable coins, uh, liquid staking protocols and bridges actually, where you have one side, um, on sort of the demand side of those protocols, people that deposit assets. And what these protocols sort of spit out is a, uh, sort of a claimable, uh, a claimable liability and you're sort of managing um, assets and liability similarly to like a bank or a money market fund or something like that. Um, and that's what stablecoin issuers do. That's what liquid staking protocols do. And that's what these sort of lock and mint bridges do. And the disadvantage of that obviously is the vast majority of hacks. Whenever you hear about these billions of dollars are getting lost in DeFi, these mostly come from these, these lock and mint bridge hacks because there's this honeypot of lock tokens on this one blockchain. The advantage of that though, is that if you don't want to just exchange value in between Ethereum and Solana sort of trust zones, but you actually want to go into the Solana ecosystem and use your Ethereum, then this is kind of the way that you have to do it, right? So those are kind of like pros and cons of, of that, that approach. Um, and Dan was just getting into some of the different flavors of what even those constructions could look like. But then there's this other, maybe we call it like the, the particle type bridges where actually we say, you know what? Uh, instead of trying to, it's not that important that most users don't actually want to take their Ethereum and move it into Solana land. They just want to be able to swap between Ethereum and native Ethereum and native Solana. And for that, for those sorts of instances, we can use a completely different uh, sort of minimized construction where even like the metrics for a bridge like that are are totally different, right? We're not trying to optimize for, you know, in the, through the lens of someone like a nomad or I don't want to pick on any one specific bridge, but the idea would be like, I want more assets to manage here. So I want more messages being passed from one chain to the other. But that's not the case for this for this new style of bridges. So hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share and at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis, Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteef. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. Maybe we can get into and, and that would be like kind of Uniswap X. Uh, and then there are elements, it seems like across is almost like a little bit of a daywalker. There are elements of both um, it, it, from what it sounds like. So maybe, maybe uh, Dan, can I, can I pick on you? Actually, I think we've, we've done a couple episodes and I've never actually asked you to give me a formal definition of, 
of Uniswap X. But if, if you kind of walk us through the the formal definition of Uniswap X, how it fits in the second camp, and then we can maybe segue into more intense based models and and where that all fits into this whole equation. Dan, I'll just add, we should you should make clear that this is like the cross chain Uniswap X. Yeah, because single chain Uniswap X is is right. It's similar but different. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so we've, we've talked a little about how um, single-chain Uniswap X works. Um, and, you know, it's an, it's an off-chain uh, protocol where uh, one with a swapper who wants to swap into another asset, they sign uh, a, a limit order or an intent. Um, they sign something uh, that uh, allows, allows any filler to actually um, fill their trade and, and, and deliver them some assets um, in exchange for the assets that they, that they were offering. Um, so that's, that's how it works on one chain. On um, multi-chain Uniswap X, which is described in the white paper, but isn't hasn't been implemented yet, or, or um, it's not it's not live. Um, uh, cross-chain Uniswap X works similarly, except the when the order is filled, it has to be delivered on um, on another chain. Um, so someone signs an offer, um, a filler can can claim that order, they and they have to claim it on the on the origin chain, the chain where the swapper um, wants to basically like send their value from the, the, where the swapper already has assets. But then when they delivered that on that uh, order, they have to uh, deliver it on some other chain. And the general idea is they, they deliver it on some other chain and then um, they are able to claim on the on the origin chain based on um, based on, on some kind of proof that they've that they've made delivery. And and I think the, the general form, the, the I think the most the most powerful and useful form of, of Uniswap X, that's an optimistic proof. Is that is that um, after a little time they can just claim on um, uh, on the origin chain because nobody has has challenged that they, that they've made that delivery. Um, but the the general idea here it requires a a one way message passing bridge it require or, or or oracle for the destination chain the chain where the use swapper wants to have assets it requires the, uh, uh, an oracle for that on the on the source chain. Um, on the on the origin chain uh, that is readable by by the by the origin chain where the where the user already has assets, and so that's that's the general um, uh, outline of Uniswap X. And Uniswap X is is agnostic to what that actual what that oracle is or how it works. Um, it could be a, a uh, canonical bridge between an L1 and an L2 or an L2 and an L1. It could be some chain of canonical bridges between chains, or it could be some um, some other kind of bridge, you know, a, a, a some kind of multi-sig bridge or, or something. It really just, all that matters is that the filler and the and the swapper are, are willing to agree on it. And I like this design uh, because as the Uniswap X white paper references, it's inspired by, inspired by across, certainly. Have you thought about this a lot? Um, I think the overall goal here is actually to minimize the number of messages we're sending across these bridges. And um, uh, the way uh, Uniswap X and across work is really quite different. And the way I like to think about it is layers of this sort of uh, intent-based bridge settlement system, which is quite different from this delivery versus payment architecture. Um, and I look at it as like these these three layers of the stack. We, we start with um, the order generation where the user creates their limit order or their intent, if we want to use the buzzy word. Um, then there is this network of fillers, relayers, or solvers, whatever we want to call them, that are actually the ones that front capital to fill the user intent. And the bottom layer is this settlement layer um, where the user assets are escrowed until we verify that the order has been filled. Um, and what's interesting about the structure here that's completely different from these like delivery versus payment uh, type networks is we can actually do much of this without very much messaging, almost minimal messaging. 
And when we do do messaging, we have the option of only using canonical oracles or canonical messages, um, messaging layers, which I think offers a lot of security advantages while still maintaining like the, the speed and usability um, that, that users are demanding. And so maybe we can go a bit deeper into that. Yeah, so, so I want to um, dig in on that because I, you've talked before about wanting to minimize the number of messages, um, but I'm, I might think of it a little differently, which is, so with any, if you have any bridge, right, you suppose you have a canonical bridge, but it's, it's slow um, possibly because say it's a bridge over from an L2 to an L1 that requires like a one week, you know, fault proof uh, challenge window or something. Um, or it's really expensive because it requires yeah, consultation um, of this, you know, multi-sig or something like that. It requires a lot of on-chain transactions to do. Um, you can basically always bootstrap this into a into a reasonably fast and and very cheap bridge by just making it optimistic. And this is another idea that I think that Hart has been pushing for a long time and um, is deeply sunk into me is that you can you can make a lot of things that are very slow or, or expensive um, fastish and and cheap by making them optimistic and only and only having someone challenge them. So is there, you know, is this just saying, oh, yeah, we don't have to send messages on the bridge because in most in the happy case, we just won't use it and we'll only use it when challenged. There's actually two optimizations here um, that fit with each other. And um, Dan, I've pilled you hard on the optimization or sort of the optimistic approach, um, which is what I've done with like UMA protocol stuff for a long time. Um, uh, I've begun to pill you on this batched transaction approach to why we batch things. And I actually think the two of them fit together very elegantly and quite nicely. Um, so like, it's worth getting kind of technical here for a split second. And it's actually worth going into some math here too. So um, first off, um, what is the, like, it's actually, I, what's the cost of, in, in this design, we have this trade-off. So we're going to do this intent-based bridging design. But the trade-off here is we have this relayer that's going to front money. And so there's a loan, a cost component here of fronting money. Um, but to give you guys some numbers, the cost of lending money at a 10% rate for one hour is a 10th of a basis point. So that means it costs like uh, one one hundredth of a penny to lend $1,000 for an hour. It's like a de minimis cost. And I don't think people quite realize this and why this is so powerful. So to the optimistic point, to Dan's point saying, if we had a bridge that took an hour, right, but was really secure, and let's, we'll go into cost savings in a second. If we had a bridge that took an hour, but is really secure, I could fix that by building this intent-based framework where I have a third party lend money um, it, almost instantly. It comes across as almost atomic for um, uh, a tenth of a basis point. And then they collect their 10% yield and we use the slow bridge to slowly verify things. And we reti retain all the, the, the security advantages of this very slow bridge, but give the user a fast experience for a very small amount of money. So first of all, Dan, we'll go into like the optimistic stuff in a second, but like, agree? Kind of yeah. makes sense? Yeah, yeah. So I have a question about this. I've actually had this question about all of these sort of like pre-confirmation type things. What happens if there's ever a dispute there? right in between the sort of fast confirmation that you'd get from sort of a market making type entity and the the confirmation process of a the settlement layer so okay very simply right um if the filler uh didn't send the user their funds uh they get their funds back after an hour 
the, fast, the slow bridge says, okay, they didn't get their money back. And like, there's different ways of kind of parameterizing this or constructing this. And maybe you want to make it a little bit painful for a filler to not fool a user. So maybe the filler actually has a bond. So the user gets back like a 10% bonus or something like that if they don't fill the user. And Uniswap X actually calls this the filler bond and they've kind of have a design for how this might work. But you do something like that. So it's painful for the, the filler to not do what they said they're going to do. Um, Got it. And okay. conversely, also, if the filler just like um, fills the wrong person or something like that, the filler just doesn't get paid back. Like, so if the filler goes and like, they don't, they send the money to the wrong address, for example, then um, the filler loses their funds and the user will get reimbursed with like this 10% bonus. So it, it, you can design pretty, pretty robust incentives to keep people honest. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So there's that. So that's like a, a very cool shortcut, how we've now taken a slow bridge and we've made it fast for what is like a very small amount of money. Um, on the optimistic approach, what Dan is saying here is like, well, and what what UMA protocol has done for a long time is like, well, okay, let's let's say that we we don't even send a message. We just have a challenge period where we don't send a message between two chains. We just say, hey, if the message didn't show up, there's a challenge period. And if somebody says, I didn't get my funds, and maybe anybody could say this depending on your design, then and only then do we send a message proving whether funds were or were not sent? And so if you design this correctly, maybe everybody does what in the happy path, everybody does what they said. You never even send a message, which is pretty cool. Um, but then there's another aspect to this that is a sort of this optimization across has fallen into that I didn't really appreciate when we were building this, but it's actually turned out to be really valuable. Um, and this just goes into like gas cost optimizations. So right now uh, in this design we have, user funds are escrowed on the origin chain. Um, filler fills the user quickly, they're happy, but then the user has to come back and ask for their funds out of this escrow account. And there's like an on-chain transaction associated with that, it like costs some money to do that. And actually on like Ethereum mainnet, it costs like a non-trivial amount of money just to get your funds back out which increased user costs. Um, so the observation here though, is like, well, if I've already waited an hour, if the relayer has already waited an hour to get their fill and it's cost them a 10th of a basis point, what if they were to wait another hour, um, but then batch together all of their repayments and instead of paying the gas costs, say they did a thousand of these transactions, instead of paying a thousand gas costs to reclaim their funds on the origin chain, they do one and they get all their funds back in one optimization. That, that seems pretty cool. And those gas costs are like non-trivial. Um, they really add up. And it's part of the reason why Across is so right. fast and cheap. And then Across goes one step further where actually we aggregate, we batch together the repayment instructions across all the chains. So relayers that fill these users, they, they get to batch the repayments on Ethereum and Arbitrum and Optimism and Polygon on all these chains, and they can get repaid in one step, which has really substantial gas savings uh, of how we do this whole thing. Um, and so basically, we've taken this intent-based model where users are fronting money, and then the relayers are saving on all their gas costs by, um, by getting paid back in one lump sum transaction, which just amortizes all these costs over many, many, many fills. 
kind of ranted there. But does that make sense no, to you? No. Yeah. So to sum it up, yeah, I, I, that's a good point. So um, if you have a cross-chain bridge that is, a, that is slow and expensive, you can make it a lot, you can make it somewhat faster and a lot cheaper by making it both optimistic. So you only actually have to uh, go to the bridge if, if something goes wrong and by batching, by having a lot of messages um, sent uh, in you know one in one uh, message if needed. I think that I think that uh, uh, that makes sense. I have yeah. I think we uh, Hard and I can get into some quibbles on I think some of the um, the microstructure of how these of how these things work. But ultimately, like I think all I do think all all bridges are going to end up um, and all these protocols are going to end up uh, uh, moving toward whatever the most the most efficient. Um, uh, minimal, minimally trusted uh, uh, architecture is just because I think the competition on cross-chain, um, uh, uh, you know, bridges and, and and costs will will end up being like it is with DEXs. So maybe maybe we should it's time to sort of take a take a step back and talk about uh, talk about some of that. I think and and how we see the see the landscape playing out. Yeah, oh, and I guess on that, I don't even know if we call this a bridge anymore. Like that's my kind of point here. Like, what is this architecture? I go back to my three points. It's like user like limit order cross chain limit order or intent then super competitive network of fillers that we want to have solve this and then this other layer that is your settlement layer and i think where dan and i very much agree is um like if we want best execution for the user which is what we want uh we want to have the most efficient uh rfq or order flow auction system that gets the user the best price for what they want to do um, we want a hyper-competitive solver market, relayer filler market, that's going to be really, really competitive at filling that user and filling them quickly. And by the way, Dan, we should talk about speed. It's the other thing we should do here too in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so most efficient order flow auction, most efficient network of uh, fillers or solvers that fill them that should be permissionless. 14-year-old kid in their basement should be able to be one of these guys, as should Jane Street, like really interesting market here. And then the settlement layer at the bottom should be the least expensive but trusted settlement layer. So whoever can do the escrow and settlement stuff, do optimizing gas costs, do whatever they do at that layer, um, that should be the settlement layer that's used in this system to, to just give the user the best execution. And to me, that's like where interop should go. And that has a lot of really cool implications. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. All in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, 0.72, whatever all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real world assets. So everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage. You'll see all of our speakers and use Bell20 for 20% off. Ticket prices are going up soon. Make sure you go use that code. I will see you in sunny London town in March. Let me ask you a question about that that middle layer, uh, which would be this really competitive uh, market for sort of 
we call them searcher builders. Let's, let's just call it kind of hedge funds, but it could be a Jane Street sort of hedge fund, and then it could be uh, some like fourteen year old kid in whatever country. <laughs> one of the one of the things though that um, that sort of strikes me that the the searchers or these fillers or solvers or whatever are going to have to do, uh, they're going to need inventory, right, to basically create those loans or sort of warehouse that risk. And I guess my, you know, how do you generally feel about, I feel like if, if you make that their role, the extension of essentially credit, um, and that looks like a very market makery type role of, of warehousing and managing risk, um, how, how could you as a, as a 14 year old with no inventory compete on something like that, especially in sort of an off-chain way where you might not have access to flash loans or something like that, that was sort of a democratizing influence for MEV back in the early days of searching. I mean, I care a lot about that point, Mike. Um, and to be clear, you can't do this without capital. Like the reason why this structure works is that um, those solve the the. I'm just gonna use the word filler. We'll use Dan's term, Uniswap X. We'll we'll we'll, we'll call it filler because in the yeah, the filler here needs to have some money to front with their own capital. And unless somebody's willing to trust them with like unsecured credit, it's got to be their own money. Um, that said. What we've seen with Across is super interesting. So, um, and Across has a, a feature here that is different from the Uniswap X design where fillers, when they do fill a user, um, they can get repaid on the same chain where they filled the user. They don't have to just get repaid on the origin chain. They can actually get repaid anywhere in the network, which helps them with inventory management. So it's like, I don't, if I can't do that, I need to have funds on every chain I'm trying to provide liquidity for. And I might end up then having funds in the wrong chain and I got to move them around. And there's like a cost to that. Um, but across by letting fillers re get repaid on the chain, they just sent funds. We help, like we don't solve it, but we like mitigate it. Um, and we really do have at the small fill size. So like smaller orders, it's hyper competitive, like hilariously competitive. And it is really truly like some of these smaller guys are filling a lot of the small orders by doing really sophisticated things that we didn't even think of. Um, so it's not like a perfect answer, but given that many, many, many of the trades that are going to happen here are $500, $1,000, you know, 50 bucks when we start doing L2 to L2 stuff, I actually am not sure it's as big as a pro of a problem as you may think. I think it's possible that for relatively small amounts of capital or inventory, you might be able to, to do significant market share. Yeah, I, this is not a, it's not a very satisfying answer, but I do think at least in the short run um, for in the cross chain environment, I think a lot of you know traditional market makers are very wary about holding funds on a lot of different chains. And so I think fillers might, you know, it's probably I imagine why you're seeing some of this on a cross fillers might be more, you know, more risk. Uh, you, you may have these more risk loving sort of independent um, fillers being more willing to go to different chains in order to, and holding, you have to hold some inventory on other chains in order to, to do these bridges. And people may just be more willing to do that in the long run. Once these things, you know, ultimately, like hopefully we're trying to, to make it not incredibly risky to be holding assets on these chains. So that risk may not actually, um, last that long, but then, then I think we fall back to what I've been saying all season, which is ultimately if the game is sufficiently competitive, um, and you, and you don't have high barriers to entry, I think it, it might actually be the case that that sometimes uh, more competitive parties just uh, end up uh, end up winning, and that might be okay as long as again they can't actually extract that much value from that because it's a it's a hyper competitive game and they have to they have to be you know um, 
they, they can't like sort of you know uh, charge too much for for users because then someone else will come in and and now compete them. I think ultimately, as long as again this is low barriers to entry, that might still be an okay situation. And here, we're, we're, I think with cross chain liquidity provision, it's like less maybe less uh, danger to say the core consensus protocol of a particular chain, for example, to have um, to have this be something that's uh, that's largely provided provided by professionalized actors. Although I don't know, maybe there's some downstream effects of it. Yeah, and, and I think that's where Dan and I agree, and there will be people on crypto Twitter that disagree with this, and I think rightfully so. Like, but having no barriers to entry and perfect competition—if that's where you've got—you're going to get great, great execution and great fills, and nobody's going to be able to extract excess rent. And maybe at some point, the fourteen-year-old kid in the basement just doesn't have the resources to do that. But like, that might be okay. That might be an okay trade-off. I, I think at some point, these two two different conversations got intertwined, and I'm not actually sure they deserve to be intertwined. So, you know, on the one hand, there's like, how competitive do we want this process to be? Like, are retail swappers getting their best execution? That kind of got intertwined with this conversation and this idea that I think Uniswap, especially V1 and V2, lit under everyone's, you know, uh, under everyone's ass, like, hey, a retail person can be a market maker. And honestly, I feel like now one of the things that you and I are starting to ask Dan this season is like, there's probably going to be a base of retail LPs, hopefully, or like sort of passive more retail LPs for a while. But I don't know, I feel like at some point, um, you know, everyone in crypto loves this idea of democratizing open permissionless access. But I do think it's probably a right and good question to ask, like, should just an average you know, person be a market maker? I think market making is really hard. Um, like if we want this, this system to scale and be really large. Uh, I'm not really sure that makes a whole lot of sense, actually, from just a first principles sort of thought. So that that's kind of where I always end up shaking out on this. Like, I, I understand that that people don't like this idea of kind of moving more things off chain, but I, I I sort of push back against the idea that you know retail people should somehow we should be designing systems so that retail people can be market makers. I I'm not really I don't think that makes a lot of sense if you sat down and thought about it. I also think, especially in this context of cross chain bridging, I think the the off-chain, the centralization risks of these sort of more off-chain protocols um, pale in comparison to the potential centralization risks of the sort of like on-chain lock and mint style protocols, where you have, you know, say one one canonical version of a of a bridged asset from uh, uh, from one chain that's being that's being sent to another. I think if you have these on-chain um, bridges, those have much more significant lock-in effects. They have much more significant um, uh, uh, entry barriers to entry. Um, and they potentially have have uh, much greater risks if they're if they're compromised. So think about with these with these off chain protocols, um, right? Like if one you know party happens to right now be be providing the most if there's a, a truly actually a competitive system for for providing cross chain bridging where whatever filler is providing the best price always um, ends up getting the fill. Um, if that party disappears, someone else maybe can come in to take their place. Someone you know if there's still a competitive um, uh, market for it. If you instead have everybody uses one you know cross chain message message passing based bridge where like you know all their eth is is represented as a as some um locked you know wrapped eth on the other chain if that party starts to charge a higher fee for um for bridging or if they if they become malicious or if they start um imposing particular you know like centralization constraints you know on who who's allowed to bridge or what you're allowed to do with the bridged asset um it's a lot harder for everybody to switch off of that 
um, than one where, you know, you have this competitive system where not only is it competitive, but like everyone could be using a different one or you can, you know, like people may not even notice when this, when this feller actually disappears and people can start using a different one because your relationship with the feller only lasts over, you know, like one hour. It's the duration of the transaction at most. Um, and so I, I think these, you know, these kind of uh, subtle centralization risks are important um, and worth, and worth noting, but I think and we should we should also look at the very real centralization risks of of these kind of on chain um, lock and mint style bridges. I'm sure I think Hart, I'm preaching to the choir certainly here with Hart. Oh my God, I agree. It's so strong, right? Like the lock and mint bridge is super. I think it's super dangerous. I'm I'm not a fan, and I don't like it. And I think that there is such risk of vendor lock in um, and centralization risks that are super scary. And are the antithesis of like what the systems we're trying to build are. Um, mm. We have shifted the conversation from your original question again, Mike. So it's like no, <laughs> lock and mint bridges okay. are dangerous and have centralization risks. On in terms of the fourteen-year-old kid in the basement being able to provide uh, market-making services, look if they can compete with Jane Street and win. And honestly, one of them might be able to. I don't know. Like, go for it. All I care about is perfect competition and no vendor lock-in. And we want systems that have perfect perfect competition and no vendor lock-in. Yeah. Well, I've got a question for you guys. And I'm sort of thinking through this live, which is always dangerous to do on a podcast. But I sort of wonder what that ultimately... I, I heard um, Preston Evans of uh, Sovereign Labs describe this sort of framework for you know what he calls trust zones. You know, His, his perspective was that, like, look, we're never going to fully solve the bridging interrupt problem in between these these different L1 ecosystems. And instead, we're going to have these kind of trust zones where, you know, like the sort of roll up Ethereum main chain sort of ecosystem for something like ETH and Solana will have its own one as well. And on the one hand, I, I think I'm sort of torn in between this vision of, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, sometime soon in the future, like apps are just going to, we're going to abstract away all this stuff underneath and you're not even going to notice any of this stuff. But I guess what my question to you is, is what is the time frame that you see that happening on? Because my user experience, right, as someone who like does stuff on chain, you you do it by uh, ecosystem. You know, you start with like, okay, I've got some Ethereum, and I'm gonna go like play around. What can I do? Oh, I can go to a roll up, and I can I can trade some stuff, and I can, you know, what I mean. And what I'm hearing from you is that there's a, a fundamental problem with lock and mint, right? And what that restricts you on is you can't as an as a user of Ethereum, I can't take my Ethereum and go use all the Solana cool stuff, right, or all the cool stuff on on Cosmos. So it does, if we just accept that principle that lock and, and mint bridges and is not a really good way to solve interoperability, then at least for the time being, I kind of do see these, at least from a user perspective, right? Like I still do see my worlds as being segmented across these different ecosystems. And I'm curious if you guys agree with that or, or push back on me. And if so, when do we get to this vision that we've all been talking about, about you just sign into a DEX and you can trade across whatever or do whatever you want? Well, you can trade across them, but like, I don't, I don't get why I want my ETH on Solana. I don't get that. That doesn't really make sense to me. What I do get, but this is a different thing. I do get that I might have like uh, 10 grand of ETH and I want a loan on Solana. Fine. Okay. That could be useful. Um, I do get that, but I don't get why I want, I don't get the other version of it. Like trading ETH, like trying to do like a, an ETH uni trade, like uni token trade on Solana doesn't really make sense to me. I don't know, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, 
I mean, I think bridges are sort of the least of the of the constraints right now. Like, you know, people, right now you have to switch wallets. You have to switch a lot of things uh, to switch between one, you know, between in like the Cosmos world or Solana world or Ethereum world. So I think those those are a lot of the constraints right now. Um, I think, you know, ultimately, uh, I, I think you can go a long way with the with just sort of like getting paid in Seoul or something, um, you know, being able to swap your ETH for Seoul. And I think, I think we will unlock quite a lot once you're, once you're able to very easily move um, value from one chain to another. Um, and like often, yeah, when you actually want to be doing stuff on, on um, Solana and one of these other ecosystems, you probably don't actually want to be doing it with ETH. Most likely you want to be doing it with Seoul or maybe with USDC or another, or another thing. Um, and we should actually, we should maybe talk also about like the elephant in the room here, which I think the USD, USDC bridging, which is um, a very powerful, uh, thing, but potentially, you know, uh, uh, kind of contributes to to some of the um, the network effects that stablecoin issuers have. Um, but ultimately, I think, yeah, I think the right now the idea that we want to actually be trading bridged assets on these other chains rather than going into native or going into other assets there, I think is um, I, I would sort of want to interrogate that a bit. Um, yeah, I do have I do have like like one thing I would want to do that I think is quite doable under this framework we're talking about is I sign an order on Ethereum that says I want to go and uh, do this action on the Solana blockchain that requires me to pay in Sol. Sol. Like, let's just say it's like the action is I wanted to go play blackjack on this application on Solana blockchain. blockchain. I have to pay in Sol, but I sign this intent on Ethereum and it just gets handled for me. Like, that makes sense to me. And that's exactly what this framework we're talking about enables, because you have the filler just go and do the thing on the soul chain for you without you leaving your native wallet. And if you extend this forward, oh. this goes. A, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go, go on. Go on. That's interesting. So every, every well, transaction, like I could just do a lot of transactions on Ethereum every time, just basically paying out of my Ethereum wallet. Yeah. I mean, Dan, I don't know if you and I've. I don't know if you and I've talked about this, but something that I think is like when you take the intense stuff to its logical conclusion. I just am signing messages that like, let's just say I have a piggy bank, like I have a Venmo account um, on a chain. And I've actually thought about like, you have Venmo chain, you have an account on Venmo chain that has some funds in it. And I just sign messages that say, I want to spend out of my Venmo chain to do this action on, um, on optimism, on casino chain, on Solana, whatever, right? And you have the network of solvers or fillers that are perfectly competitive. They just go and do the thing for you and they get paid back out of your Venmo chain after a delay, right? And the, del well, sorry, they get paid back after the delay. Your action happens almost instantaneously. And if you think about that, this is what I think is like a cool version for interop where I'm in one wallet signing one set of things and the solver network is the one that's just executing for me. And then I think you're in a cool world of like chain abstraction. That is fascinating. I'm not, I'm not sure I believe that, that that full extended version will be will be sufficiently efficient. You still have to do some transaction on the source chain, I would think, every time. Although I guess you could have a payment channel. Anyway, this is interesting. What, um, why? Well, just, why? just in order to like prevent me from double spending on the on the origin chain, I'm going to have to do some do something that's going to prevent me from from you know spending on on multiple on multiple things. So you're going to have to like somehow uh, lock my ETH on that chain. Um, but it could be, yeah, sorry, it's, it's, it's sorry. Your, 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 yeah. your Venmo chain, your Venmo chain would have to be like time locked where like, I yeah, couldn't yeah, yeah. Still right. take all my money. Which, out yeah. Of so it. if I could like they're, open they're... a payment channel with someone, with someone who's doing that on the other chain. So maybe, maybe that's very interesting. Um, 
But, uh, but yeah, but I think ultimately, look at this, yeah, that, which would be very cool. And I, I think this is true about the generalized intense thing. It's like, this would all be very cool. But right now, it's kind of scandalous that I can't even like make a payment to someone on another chain right now. Like there's no easy way for me to make it to pay someone soul on a chain. And in fact, the example that's really getting me agitated right now is USDT on Tron of all things um, is that, you know, like apparently, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of places in the world, you can pay someone in crypto. You can pay someone in USDT on Tron um, at like a convenience store, which is sort of wild that you can do this. And, you know, but like, I don't, I don't want to hold USDT on Tron personally, but like maybe I would want to pay someone who wants to receive it. And so, like, if I want to make payments, if I have my Ethereum wallet, like, why can't I actually just scan one of those uh, uh, links and and make a payment to them? Um, and so that's that's a very clear intent of just like I want to actually deliver money to somebody on this um, on this chain that I would never want to touch with a ten foot pole. I don't want to have a Tron wallet even, um, uh, let's say. But like, I do actually want to you know make a payment to someone who who does. That should be completely abstract for me. Like, I should just be able to pay anyone on any chain. So, Dan, this example you bring up is hilarious because I am here in Istanbul and um, USDT on Tron is everywhere, um, like <laughs> everywhere. You can pay for it everywhere. And you How can go to the Grand Bazaar. It, That's it, nuts. Mike, Mike, like there's a whole other podcast. Like I went to the Grand Bazaar and got a tour of these money businesses. You can exchange $10 million of cash money, like USD cash for Tron, USDT on Tron in the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. Like they have car- money carts, they roll. It's like absolutely wild. Um, there's a whole other world there. That's a different podcast. But my point is, it's a major that podcast. That's a nuts. That's crazy. <laughs> next <laughs> season, next season, right? Should be yeah. the Yantron season. <laughs> it, it's completely wild. And like T- Tarun, like like Dan Tarun went and he actually did. Uh, we should ask him about this. He did buy something. He like bought like a beer or something with like USDT on Tron. Um, and I don't have a Tron wallet. Like I couldn't do this and they don't like, they, they like it here a lot. Um, but you're right. We need a cross protocol to support Tron, which is weird. And I have to think about so that you could do have a relayer, fill your beer purchase on the Tron blockchain near instantaneously. Um, and okay. That's like, that'll go on our product roadmap. Um, but we should be able to do that. That's all right. That, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a whole other, that's a whole other campaign. <laughs> but um, I want to, I want to ask you, Hart, because, um, you know, maybe, maybe just in closing here, I would love to get a sense. I always love talking to operators um, and kind of the metrics and, uh, you know, what you pay a lot of attention to. So we've sort of talked about this idea of um, reducing the amount of messages that get sent, which kind of goes against the orthodoxy of more traditional sort of lock and mint bridge designs. You know, you are really, really big on this idea of capital efficiency. So I would love to get get a sense from you about like, what what do your customers find that are super important? I would guess just the cost of bridging, maybe time. I know you tend to focus a lot on capital efficiency. And then if we could just get into a little bit of the strategy of what it is to to run one of these bridges and how do you compete and right. And whether or not you see, you know, big power laws across these different types of bridges as well. Um, maybe we can just talk about that in closing. Yeah. Well, okay. What does the user care about? They want to bridge assets, uh, canonical assets. They want to bridge them as quickly as possible and as cheap as possible. And those are the things I think the space needs to care about a lot more than anything else. And capital efficiency here really matters. Um, but it ultimately matters into like, what are your costs here? 
um, versus speed and all that. So in my example, that an hour loan at a 10% rate costs a 10th of a basis point um, in price terms um, means that, okay, there's that if you can use a loan to offer a user a faster experience and actually save money because your gas fees are cheaper when you're like, um, when you're using this intense based bridge design, that's like a good trade-off. So our entire time in designing our protocol is how do we make the right trade-off here to give the user like the long run sustainable cheapest bridge design. Um, and like small shell, but like Mike, across bridging on across is cheaper than the canonical bridge on optimism or Arbitrum or Polygon. Like we, the bridging costs are cheaper than the native canonical bridge because of all of these gas efficiencies and it's way, way faster too. So my metric is just like, how do we make this thing cheap? And how do we do smart things with money? How do we actually use these loans effectively to give a great bridge experience? What I don't think is useful is looking at the metric of like number of uh, bridge transactions like, or number of messages passed. Number of messages passed, like every message you pass is expensive and or costly or secure. It's like, it's the wrong thing you want to do. You want to stop sending messages because as Dan and I just walked through, you can do a really elegant, cheaper, faster bridge design without sending any messages at all. So, you know, I kind of I kind of laugh a little bit, like when Brian from Layer Zero posts on Twitter, the number of Layer Zero messages are like up into the right. I'm thinking you're just wasting gas and or doing inefficient things. And that's like not the right thing to to focus on. So that, that's my take. All right. La- last two questions for you. We were one. I, I cheated a little bit and asked you before before the podcast here. But um, in, you know, my my mental model again for 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 bridges, the traditional lock and mint bridge, the strategy, uh, very similar to like a liquid staking token provider where there's very large power laws and you're trying to you know uh, compete on brand and liquidity, something like a Lido, and you want to be the canonical representation of staked ETH, something like that. I would guess that's what you want to do for lock and mint bridges as well, right? If you're going to have Ethereum represented on Solana even if we think that doesn't necessarily make sense, you want to be the canonical version of that, right? So would assume sort of insane power laws, and you also kind of want to have a relationship with the, the consumer. I guess in these these other alternative bridge designs that we're talking about, Hart, who ultimately has the relationship with the, the consumer? And then in terms of bridges, do you see the same kind of power laws that we might see in something like stablecoins or LSTs, or does it end up being a little bit more uh, fragmented or a different market structure? Okay, trying to do this quickly, right? Um, I think the majority... Save like the biggest question for the last five minutes there. (laughs) I think the majority of value that's going to be moved between chains is is major assets. It's going to be USDC, USDT, and ETH. And we still maybe need to talk about the circle bridge uh, problem in a second, but we'll come back to that. I think major assets are going to be the major thing you're moving between chains. I think you see that in DEX volumes today, like 80... 60 to 80% of DEX volumes is, cha- is trading between major assets. Um, so those assets are not going to ever be in, um, like they're not ever, they don't want to submit to, they don't want to be controlled by some other bridging infrastructure. That's like scary for them. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think you, like Ethereum is never going to be really cool and like really on board with some other protocol controlling a huge amount of Ethereum supply in a lock and mint design on another chain. That's just gonna be like really scary. And I don't think that's what you're, you're gonna want. So, um, okay. So 
I think that the lock and mint bridges maybe make sense for longer tail assets um, that have this idea of them wanting to move between chains. I'm still not convinced that that's like a huge opportunity, but I could see some developers thinking that's interesting. So that's where maybe they're okay with like a vendor lock-in concept and using something like Layer Zero's OFT standard, even though I, I don't think that's like, I think there's some risks around vendor lock-in there. Leaving that aside, the other question is who owns the relationship with the user here? And I go back to the relationship with the user is owned by whomever is generating the user intent or the, the, the limit order. So if Uniswap X is the source where users are trying to bridge between chains, they own the relationship with the user. If it's a bridge aggregator like Socket or LeFi, they own the relationship. If in my example, there's some uh, of like my Venmo chain lets you do something on Tron, they're owning the relationship with the user. And uh, like where I think a cross fits in is where this settlement layer that's behind the scenes, that's like deep in the stack, but is providing this like uh, escrow and settlement services for this intent-based bridge design. Um, so that's me speed running the question. Awesome. That was really helpful. Uh, Hart, this has been awesome, my man. Uh, really glad that we could make history here with, with you and Dan on, on one podcast. This is, this is great. Um, if folks want to find out more about you or follow the work that you're doing at across, what is the, what's the best way to do it? Um, I'm on Twitter at Hal2001, H-A-L-2001. Um, and across protocol on Twitter too. Um, yeah. And thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks guys. This was a fun one. All right. Well, Dan, that was a, that was a ton of fun with heart. Um, that was just a lot of energy on that episode. Very great. Um, yeah, no, I love, I love chatting with heart. I guess, uh, you know, the first question that feels appropriate to ask now that heart is in here is why aren't you invested in his startups, man? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are buds, always- smart guy. Right, right, right. It's just that the timing's never been right um, uh, for various reasons, sadly. But uh, but I, no, I love Hart and have a lot of respect for him. Um, and a lot, yeah, I mean, he and I have talked about a lot of ideas and a lot of stuff, including stuff like uh, the Yield Protocol, which paper I uh, worked on a few years ago, was very inspired by conversations with him. Yeah. Uh, well, it came across to this conversation. And I guess, you know, first takeaway, you know, kind of RIP mitten lock chains. Um, you know, I think you, both, you, both you and Hart, uh, not, not big supporters of that of that design i guess yeah. you know it, it felt a little almost not one-sided and if that's just a, a not a great architecture it's not a great architecture but if we had to steel man the other side of that is there is there any additional nuance that we might have missed or or an additional point for why that design might actually make sense yeah i think there's there's one really clear one which is it it is often very useful to have a representation of a, of a foreign asset on a chain yeah. Um, and I think one example is is Bitcoin on Ethereum, right? It's, it's very useful to have some representation of Bitcoin um, uh, on Ethereum. And inherently, there's, there's sort of two ways to do that. One of them is with a synthetic that is backed by on by collateral on Ethereum. And the other is to have some kind of lock and mint bridge where you can lock up um, Bitcoin on uh, uh, on Bitcoin and, and it's back in one-to-one some token on, on Ethereum. Um, and the latter kind is, you know, it's, it's how uh, uh, centralized um, or, or somewhat centralized systems like WBTC work. It's also um, how more decentralized ones like TBDC work. But ultimately, you still have this have this lock and mint pattern, um, and it sort of is the it sort of is the only way to do to do that capital efficiently. The the alternative where you have collateral and it's sort of a synthetic um, works, but again, that, that requires a lot of um, potentially a lot of capital and, and someone to. Uh, to provide a lot of uh, of collateral on the on the um, uh, that chain. So if you want that model, and I think some there are cases where you want it, um, it could be 
it, it could be very powerful. But when someone just wants, like a user just wants to actually move from one chain to another, I think it's usually, I would say, probably not the most efficient way. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree with you. Um, so one thing that we didn't really get to talk about during the episode, but I actually want to ask you about two sort of cross-chain interop solutions that have popped up and are gaining a little bit of steam. So we started to talk about the USDC-centric solution. So it's CCTP, a circle cross-chain transfer protocol, something like that. And then also yeah. Chainlink has a CCIP. So um, you, know, I, you know, I guess my, my question to you is we didn't really talk that much about uh, circle solution. Hart mentioned just at the end of that interview that he thinks there's basically going to be power law of assets. And most people don't really care about bridging the, the long tail and most of the volume that people are going to want to transfer or swap into and out of are, you know, USDC, ETH, you know, kind of the big ones. So, you know, I, when, when it, then when you talk about Circle having their own uh, native bridging sort of solution, it's like, well, they get a good bit of the volume just there. So what do you think about uh, Circle CCTP? Yeah. So I think it's a, it's CC, so CCTP, it's based on a very powerful realization, which is if you have a custodial asset that's being issued by some party, um, on one chain, the best way to bridge that asset, um, um, you know, generally is to do is to do it in a way that's native uh, to the asset, and this has exactly the same trust requirements as the um, uh, as the asset itself, or arguably that's the best way. And so you might as well just have you know burn your USDC on one chain, go give it you know have Circle effectively uh, act as a bridge for you, so that you can burn it on one chain and and mint it on another chain. Um, and then once you have that, it's actually. It's very powerful because you could imagine even if the asset you want to bridge isn't Circle, um, you might be able to trade, isn't USDC. You might be able to trade your asset for, for USDC on that chain and, um, uh, and then trade it somewhere else. Or even if, you know, the asset, you actually don't want to trade it for USDC. Funny enough, like if you are just willing to trust Circle, they're kind of operating a bridge right now. So one funny hack I've seen used to uh, suggest it as a way to... Um, to take advantage of this bridge is just to, you can imagine sending a message. I'm sorry, sending a message between chains by just sending USDC to a, like, like one way of USDC to a particular address um, and having uh, and having that address actually be the hash of the message that you want to send. And so just sort of hacking circle, they'll use them as a bridge. Um, but because, you know, if they're already running this really high stakes bridge there, you know, maybe, maybe you might as well use that. So it's a, it's a very powerful idea. Um, I do think it poses some it poses some some risks for the same reason that having a, a dominant stablecoin on any chain poses risks for the, the centralization of that chain, which is you know ultimately putting a lot of power in the uh, in in one party's hands functionally um, or on one particular bridge. And so I think I think it's a it's a risk to have that. But that that said, you know um, we already have that risk on on any one chain with USDC, right? If someone were to compromise the USDC key, minting keys. Um, then the, the, the consequences on, on Ethereum at least would be very severe. Um, and so to some extent, we already have that. You already are trusting that um, uh, to, to a great degree. But, you know, it does, doesn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, but does does make me think, okay, it's maybe maybe uh, you, you might as well just do it for, for a cross-chain bridge. Do you think that ultimately, I mean, isn't this eventually some, something that we're going to have to come to and face? Because isn't the whole point of these smart contracting platforms to develop apps that have product market fit what is circle if not an app that has product market fit and then eventually in the you know hopefully this doesn't end up happening but it's kind of a feature of blockchain right is that you have these sort of hard forks uh and eventually then it seems like cir the circles of the world or the coin bases of the world or the, the us the tethers of the world right are going to have an enormous amount of say in terms of what is the canonical chain do you do you subscribe to that idea that you know, sort of inevitably, these apps are going to have a lot of power in that regard. I think for yeah, well, I think for custodial apps, it is a big concern. For obvious, you know, for for an app that isn't that isn't custodial, and I think it might be a sort of a different a different situation. Um, 
you know, I, I think it, it asks maybe an even bigger question, which is if, um, you know, if we start trusting essentially USDC to run a bridge between these chains, right, then why don't we actually just having USDC run a ledger? Like, why, why aren't we just using USDC? Like, why can't we just na- transact natively in USDC with on their ledger and have them keep track of everybody's balances? Um, and sort of functionally just have them run a, you know, their own chain, like a one of one um, chain. And it's, it is sort of a, it, it's maybe an important question. Um, uh, that's it. Like, I think the, the value of USDC especially is in, is when you start using it with other things. And so um, to some extent, you know, the, what actually gives it its value is you're going to be using it, you know, trading it for, for ETH on, on some other chain. Right. And that's something that you wouldn't want to trust um, uh, circle entirely on is like to, to run the ledger that has every, all the other assets on it. So I think in some sense, like this is, you know, having this interoperability zone where, where USDC is responsible for USDC transfers across chains. And you could maybe imagine a world where they, where they were able to just operate uh, USDC payments between people um, might be fine. If again, like the point is then I, is interoperability between this ledger uh, that USDC, the circle effectively is running um, with other ledgers that are running different or more decentralized applications. Man, that's a good question. I hadn't really taken it to that extreme, but yeah, that's probably when we get to USDT on Tron. I mean, like if that's like how everyone's transferring USDT and it's because it's so cheap, like you know, I don't know why isn't Tether just running a, a ledger, right? And I think there, there may actually be regulatory reasons why why there's a difference. Um, but yeah, it just sort of does make you wonder. It's like, all right, like actually, why not? Why not? Why don't they just keep a keep a database? Um, uh, and I don't know. Some, if, if if mostly what's being done is just simple payments. Yeah, Tether is a that one's an enigma for me. That was a that was a really interesting anecdote that we got from Hart. Yeah, um, uh, that one maybe will remain a mystery for a little while longer. But um, what do you think about CCIP, which is sort of the? Uh, I mean, it was interesting, by the way. I, I'm glad Hart uh, sort of uh, you know clarified. I was a little bit confused with how you guys were referring to oracles, but I mean, you know, Chainlink has its own sort of. Uh, you know, cross-chain interoperability sort of solution, which is what they're dubbing CCIP. I don't know if you've poked around at that at all or have any thoughts. I've only looked a little at it, so I can't talk about the details, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me logically because I think of, um, from a technical perspective, a bridge is, a one-way message passing bridge is just an oracle. Um, yeah. It's just an oracle on one chain for the state of, the, of another chain. Mm. Um, a two-way message passing bridge, which is all you need to, to create, like a, you need to wrap tokens in a lock and mint pattern, um, across these chains is just it's just two one-way you know oracles between these particular uh, chains right and so if you have an oracle protocol then it makes a lot of sense to use it as a uh, to use it as a bridge and then to natively build uh, build that in um, I'm I'm not yeah I'm not familiar with the details of sort of how of how all the rest of CCP, CCIP is built around that but like it just makes sense to me that if you have an oracle you might as well use it as a bridge um, or that, that 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 would be a compelling um, possible possible use case for it but like you know I, I would I would flip it around and say just like actually. When we talk about bridges, often what we are talking about is oracles, that they're all actually competing in this, or- in this oracle sphere. Um, one thing I'll say, though, is with bridges, you actually have a lot more power um, than you do with... If you have an oracle for, for something that's a completely off-chain fact, um, right, then, like, it's... Uh, you sort of are going to need some kind of trust assumption or some, you know, multi-party something or other uh, mm. for it, some subjectivity ultimately there. I do think if you've got a message going across blockchains, blockchains are to some extent legible um, uh, things. They should, you should, uh, in theory, at least one blockchain maybe should be able to, for example, like parse another or, or interpret a zero knowledge proof about the state of another. And if you have an, uh, a cross-chain messaging system that doesn't make use of any of that, um, uh, or, or at least or of all of it as much as you can, that seems unfortunate in, in the long run. It seems to me like ultimately the ground truth 
ideally of, of cross-blockchain communication should, should involve, for example, the consensus protocols of those chains or the validation rules of those chains. Um, and I don't know if that's, I'm not sure whether maybe maybe in the long run chain link does does do that. But I think just treating it as the same kind of problem as being, oh, you know, learning about about like this, you know, who won a football game or something, I think is, um, uh, it's reducing it to, to maybe a harder problem. Yeah. Let me ask you, you know, one of the things that people have been talking about in crypto for as long as at least I've been in the space has been sort of this, um, you know, uh, idealized state where you and I ideally don't talk about any of this. You know, we're not on a podcast talking about interoperability because it just works and no one even understands that it's a problem. And you just interface with your app and then it does all the stuff that you want it to do. Um, I mean, how far do you think we are out from from that standpoint? Uh, just, just because I remember being in like 20... 2018 timeframe where people thought that this was not going to be a problem, you know, within like a year or two or something like that. And, and yeah, here we sorry. still are in there. That what was yeah. not going to be a problem? That uh, interoperable, like that we were, bridges were going to come and it was going to solve the some, some of the breakdowns in between these these different blockchains and the future was going to be multi-chain, but that was okay because there were bridges. And, you know, here we still are all these hacks and we're still debating about different uh, families of bridges and what the best, what the sort of trade-offs are. So I guess, you know, if you had to put a, a timeframe on, on really you know, solving the 80% of these problems. I mean, how far away are we still? Yeah, I think there's there's sort of two problems. One is from a user experience perspective. Um, mm. Can we actually have the experience of a user switching between chains being a lot better? Um, I think some of that comes from uh, uh, tech like like Uniswap X or, or I think across um, just sort of abstracting away a lot of the of the root complexity for a user and making it easier. Some of it's going to depend on like on wallets, you know, and and just uh, other parts of user experience from from switching chains um, that I think are really challenging. But I think all that we sort of have a have a line on. Um, the other part of it is like is at at the the base level, like what are these what are all these um, protocols uh, sort of built on top of? And I I do worry that we'll end up with a lot built on kind of r- more rickety foundations than we would have thought we would have. I think even when you look at um, L2 bridges or cross L2 bridges, uh, you see a lot of kind of of uh, bridges that don't ultimately resolve down to the canonical bridges, which seems like a shame. Um, and mm. like for, for various reason, uh, reasons of efficiency or convenience, I think often people uh, or, or protocols end up, end up using different kind of trust assumptions for that. Um, I think in the long run, I, I would assume that we, that everything ends up using using the canonical bridges as a source of truth that's what I'm, I'm not so sure because you know the um ultimately actually like that's a canonical bridge even is still is still potentially a big uh uh, uh honeypot right and so actually having maybe having multiple sources of truth and multiple bridges is, is actually not um not as bad so i'm 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 not so sure um ultimately i think i don't think we're going to have like one big solution for the for the for the uh that like second problem of the the ground truth i think it's going to be a lot of hacks built on top of hacks and just things that mm. kind of like barely rickly hold together um for the user experience i have more confidence that like if this, if all this stuff is working it's because we've really abstracted this away for users and it's actually pretty simple to move money from one chain to another yeah i would agree with that i think it's it's very it's very confusing from the perspective of a user because a like just imagine you don't know these words like optimism or arbitrum or ethereum or whatever and you get your first mobile wallet and it's like i have these options to be on which chain you're like well i don't know what this means i mean is one of these chains yeah. better than the other chains like what am i deciding between it's if you if you really take yourself out of it for a second it's wildly confusing to users that your first 
experience, you know? Yeah. And I, I have this, I have this strong opinion now that I think, especially something like payments, which we talked about a bit on the, on the podcast, something about like payments, I think just should be, I should be able to pay someone no matter what chain they're on from my chain without having to go bridge over to their chain and then make a payment to them or have the assets on that chain. And that's something, you know, yeah. And then I think we we get into, I think Hart had an even crazier idea for, for, um, uh, yeah, this This was cool. uh, I was talking about cross chain intents. Um, but I think that that's sort of a start where it just shouldn't actually be part of the user experience to have to like bridge between chains in order to use an application or, make, or make, certainly make a payment to someone who's on the other chain. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think his and what he, I think he sort of called it Venmo chain, right? Where, you know, if you take intents to their logical conclusion, you can just sit and have your balance of let's, let's say Ethereum and whenever I want to make a payment, you kind of submit it to this, this hive of, you know, search or filler, solver, whatever word you want to describe, and they go off and kind of do that for you in a really optimized way. And, you know, your balance just gets debited or whatever. Um, so that kind of does seem like the the ultimate future. And I actually think there was a, a, a podcast where you were describing, even from the perspective of a mechanism designer, you know, when you would kind of design these, these, these solutions that required, um, you know, kind of left some money on the ground for people to pick it up. There was a time in crypto's uh, recent history where people wouldn't come and pick some of that money up. But now, uh, now that's a little bit different, and people will generally come pick up money if you leave it around. And maybe that's the same analogy for these sort of searchers and this, this, uh, you know, these third-party networks of people that will go and do this stuff, execute uh, payments or transactions on users' behalf. We just got to wait a little for it to be a thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to start with the very, the very basic stuff. If I have an asset on this chain and want an asset on this chain, or I want to have an yeah. asset on this chain and want, I want someone to pay someone else who's on this other chain. I think people might be getting ahead of themselves um, with the other stuff. But like, yeah, I think in the long run, may, maybe it's entirely abstract and I can use a, uh, an asset from any chain. So some of the, I think there are some challenges to that. Um, and so one of them I was talking about with with uh, uh, on the podcast was just. If I if I have to do a transaction on both chains in order to interact with an application, and I want to do a lot of like interactions with that application, like that's that seems very inefficient. Um, yeah. And if I have to if I have to make a trade of like you know one asset for another every time, I think I'm going to I'm going to pay more ultimately in like spreads. Uh, if I'm if I'm trading, you know USDC for ETH or something, every time I do a, a transaction, I'm going to be end up paying more than if I did one big transaction. I would expect. Um, mm-hmm. Unless that's not that's not necessarily always true from it from an exchange structure point of view. So so maybe not. But um, you'd think there'd be a lot of there'd be a lot of overhead in in a lot of these. Um, and like there's reasons. You know, oh yes, and and if I want to do something atomically, right. Um, uh, it just helps to be co-located basically on, a, on the same chain um, in the same execution environment as, as something. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting to think about the, why, why do I actually, why do I need all that? I don't know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and I think from a, I, I just hadn't really thought about it, about this as, uh, that much until I was thinking about it live today. And I was like, huh, this is, this is actually kind of interesting. So I'm, I, I want to follow up with Hart a bit about that. Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. Um, all right, Dan, this was a, a really fun episode, um, and I will see you uh, next week. Next one. See you next week.